You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Bhutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, you know, uh, chances are all of us at some point have been hurt by someone we love, right? You know, maybe it's a spouse who's cheated on you or, 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 or maybe it's an adult child who's destroying their lives uh, with, with, with an addiction of some kind or, or maybe growing up you had a parent who was abusive and even now as an adult, they, they still manipulate you and still kind of do these things. Well, you know, and, and we tend to think that, that because we love them, then that, that that means we, we, we have to allow them to keep lying. We have to allow them to keep cheating, to, to keep drinking, to keep using or, or to keep doing Doing whatever their dysfunctional behavior is. But this morning, before us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is an example from the Corinthian church that reminds us that sometimes love must be tough. Sometimes you have to draw the line. Sometimes there have to be boundaries. So now with that, as we go back to verses 1 and 2, first of all, Paul gets a report about sin in the church. He gets a report about sin. Verse 1, it says again, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now remember, back in chapter 4 last week, we saw that the Corinthian church had a pride problem, right? They had a pride problem. In fact, remember the, the key phrase that we saw in last week's chapter was this phrase, puffed up. And we saw it over and over again. I told you that the Greek word that was used there is fusio, which, which means to, to swell up or, or to inflate. And so they really had a, an, an overinflated view of themselves. They, 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 they had a puffed up uh, 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 view of, uh, of themselves, and they were acting puffed up toward each other. And they, they also, uh, in chapter 4, Paul said they had puffed up speech. Know anybody like that? Know anybody who, who you know, is kind of puffed up in their speech? You know, they, they want to use all these, these big words to try to impress you, to try to make you think that they're so sophisticated and, and, and so intellectual. In fact, you know, it reminds me, years ago, uh, we, we hired a drywaller at, at, at my house to, to do some work. And, 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 and when he found out I was a pastor, he wanted to use all these really big, technical, theological words to impress me. You know, words like eschatology which, by the way, is the study of the end times. Uh, or, or words like soteriology, which is, which is the study of, of the doctrine of salvation. So he's using all these big words, trying to impress me. And, and then at one point in the conversation, he makes an exaggeration to prove his point. And then he pauses and says, you know what that is? That is, is called a hyperbole. Now, the word I think he was looking for is pronounced hyperbole, uh, but you know, he was using a, a very big word, right? And so, well, that was the Corinthians, using these big, impressive words, trying to, trying to you know, uh, make you think that they were so sophisticated. Paul said last week they were puffed up in speech, and now this morning in chapter 5, we see that they are puffed up in a new area. Uh, they're puffed up in this area in chapter 5, where we read that, that there's this young man in the church who evidently is sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother, in other words. He's sleeping with her. Now, listen, in the original Greek language, this is pronounced redneck. Uh, You know, as as, as Jeff Foxworthy might have said back in the day, if you view the upcoming family reunion as a great chance to meet women, you might be a redneck. And so, so here's this guy sleeping with his father's wife. And now Paul says in verse two, he, he says, He says, and you are arrogant. Now, the New King James Version of the Bible uses this phrase. It says, you are puffed up. There's that phrase again. 
You're puffed up. They, they, they were prideful. You see, what was happening was that not only were, were they turning a blind eye to this person's sin, but they were actually bragging about it. They were boasting about, about how loving they were, how, how inclusive they were, how, how tolerant they were, that, that they could even accept a guy like this in their church. And, and so Paul, in verse 1, is telling them that this particular brand of sin was so scandalous, that he says in verse 1, that it was not tolerated even among pagans, even among non-Christians, even among non-believers. In fact, he, he's right. Uh, the Roman statesman Cicero put it this way. Uh, Cicero said, within the confines of the Roman Empire, this sin was not condoned. In fact, it was outlawed. It was illegal. Now listen, that says something. When you consider how loose the morals were in the Roman Empire, I mean, uh, history tells us that 14 out of the first 16 Roman emperors were homosexuals. Uh, history tells us that prostitution was rampant in, in the Roman Empire. Uh, pornography was rampant in the in Roman Empire. Venereal disease was rampant in the Roman Empire. And not only in Rome, but particularly the city of Corinth. I mentioned before that, that in the city of Corinth, the highest hill in that city was called the Acrocorinth. And at the top of that Acrocorinth, on the top of that hill, there was a temple called the Temple of Aphrodite. And the temple of Aphrodite housed 1,000 temple prostitutes. And, and so uh, this was a very loose, immoral environment. And, and yet, as immoral as the Roman Empire was, this particular sin was considered so egregious even by them that the pagans wouldn't even tolerate it. And they tolerated everything, but they wouldn't tolerate this. And so now Paul tells them in, in, in verse 2 how they should have responded. In verse 2, after he says, and you are arrogant, he then says, ought you not rather to mourn? Now, I have it on good authority that the name of the English translator who just translated that uh, from the Greek into the English in the ESV, his, his name was Yoda. Uh, ought you not rather to, to, to mourn? I mean, could it have not been more awkward the way you translated that? <laughs> it's so, you know, but, but you get the point, right? The word mourn there, it, it's literally describing, you know, the, the emotional depth that you have when you've lost a loved one when you're grieving the loss of a loved one. And so Paul's saying, listen, your reaction, instead of bragging, instead of boasting about, about how, how, how accepting you are, how, how tolerant you are, your reaction should have been, should have been the, that of, of losing someone that, that you loved more than life itself. You shouldn't have been bragging, you should have been grieving. And by the way, that word grieving, it reminds me, uh, Ephesians 4 verse 30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It's possible to grieve God. It's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That word grieve, uh, it means to, to make sorrowful, to, to be deeply sad, to be overcome with grief. The late Warren Wiersbe uh, used to say that, that you can tell a lot about a person by the things that make him laugh or by the things that make him weep. And, and the Corinthian church, in their pride, they were celebrating the very thing that God was grieving. It made God grieve, but they were rejoicing over it. They were celebrating it. Listen, the Bible tells us that, that those who love the Lord, we, we should love what he loves, right? If we love the Lord, we love what he loves. You know, Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. Or if you would, how I love your word. It is my meditation all the day. So if we love the Lord, we love what he loves. Now, you know, however, I think as Christians, sometimes I think that, that that means that we're supposed to love anything and anyone. 
We're just supposed to walk around all the time like, who wants a hug? You know, just, you know, we're supposed to love everything. But did you know that, that the Bible teaches that not only should we love what he loves, but if we love him, we should, also lo- we should also not only love what he loves, but hate what he hates. Now, somebody might be, well, that can't be right. I mean, hate's not a family value. I mean, yeah, but listen, the Bible says in Psalm 97, verse 10, you who love the Lord hate evil. So if we love the Lord, then we love what he loves, but we hate what he hates. And so this was grieving God, and it should have been grieving them, but it wasn't. They were boasting about it. They were bragging about it. And so now in verses 3 through 8, now the Apostle Paul tells them how to handle this sin. How to handle this sin. Verse 3, Paul says, For though absent in in body, I am present in spirit, and and, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So Paul's saying, look, I can't be there right now. I'm a little indisposed, uh, but but even though I can't be there, I'm going to send in my vote. I'm voting by proxy. I'm mailing in my ballot. This is how I would have voted if I was there. So then he says in verse 4, When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the the old leaven that you may be a new lump as, 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 as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, first of all, there's a couple things, but first of all, Paul says at the end of verse five, he says to, to, to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, in effect, what Paul's saying is, listen, you need to let him face the consequences of his sin. Because hopefully the consequences are going to be the very thing that'll get his attention and eventually cause him to repent and eventually drive him back to God. But if you don't let him face the consequences, he may never actually turn back to God. So you've got to let him face the consequences. Now, I'm sure somebody in the Corinthian church might have been thinking, yeah, but you know, what's the big deal? I mean, I mean, it's just one guy. It's not like the whole church is doing this. It's just one guy in the church. What's the big deal? So Paul responds to that in verse 6 by saying, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now you're you're thinking, what what is that all about? Well, in effect, he's like, hey, listen, here you are. You're you're bragging about how inclusive you are and and, and how accepting you are, you know, and, 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 and you don't even realize that one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. But he puts it this way. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So you're like, well, what is leaven? Well, I'm glad you asked. Now, remember, in the scriptures, leaven is often used as a symbol to represent sin. It symbolically represents sin. But, but leaven itself, as, as I've mentioned in past teachings, uh, was, was uh, basically fermented dough. What was happening is, is if you're going to make a, a loaf of bread, first you make your batch of dough, and then what you do is you, you tear off a little piece of it, roll it up into a ball, and then set it up on the windowsill and let it ferment for a series of days. Now, later on, when you're going to make a fresh batch of, 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 of dough, you then grab that, that leavened dough off the windowsill that's fermented, and, and so they call it leaven now, and, and you grab it and mix it into the fresh batch, and, 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 and it acts as a rising agent. And so it gets in there, you spread it all in, and, and it causes the bread to, to rise, it causes it, it to puff up, it causes it to grow. And, and so the idea is that leaven starts small, but it grows quickly. 
And it's the same thing with sin. Sin starts small, but it grows quickly. It doesn't stay small. You know, and so, you know, you go to that party. You know, and at first it's no big deal. You know, you, you know somebody says, well, hey, just have one drink. One drink's not going to hurt anything. So you have one drink, and it was no big deal. And then you have another, and another, and another. And before you know it, you go from saying, hey, one drink won't hurt anything, to saying, dude, where's my car? You know, and so it, it just, it grows and grows, and it becomes a problem. And so Paul says in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. Now, to understand that statement, you need to understand that, that during the Passover festival that the Jewish people practice, uh, uh, they, they would typically remove all the leaven from their house. In fact, they made it a game. They had the kids, instead of you know, hide-and-go-seek, it was hide-and-go-leaven. Just go find all the leaven in the house and remove it. Because they believed, basically, that, that, that a little bit of leaven was enough to defile the whole house. And so uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 15, tells them to remove the leaven from the house. So that's what they would do. They would search the house and remove the leaven. So now Paul's taking that principle, the principle of removing the leaven from your house, and now he's applying it to the church, to the church in Corinth. And, and he's saying, you gotta, you gotta deal with this. You gotta remove this leaven from the church. So again, in, in, in chapter five, Paul's dealing with this church that's bragging about how tolerant they were, that they could tolerate even a guy like this who's sleeping with his dad's wife. And Paul says, listen, what you're bragging about is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven spoils the whole batch? You've got to remove the leaven. In other words, he's saying, you know what? You've got to remove this guy from the church before his sin spreads through the whole church and corrupts everything. You've got to remove him before it spreads through the whole church. <clears throat> you know, and, and so there, there, there's two things. When we look at, at, at the phrase in verse 5 and also the phrase in verse 7, in verse 5 when he, when he says, deliver him over to Satan uh, that for the destruction of his flesh, and then in verse 7 when he says, Re- remove or, 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 or cast out or cleanse out the old leaven. There's two things there that he's saying. He's saying the two reasons that you need to kick this guy out of the church, kick this guy out of your fellowship, number one, the first reason is because he needs to face the consequences of his sin. Because it's the consequences that more than likely will be the very thing that drive him back to God. But if you don't let him face those consequences, who knows if he'll ever come back to God. So you've got to let him you know, face the consequences. That's number one. But then number two, the second reason is this. Listen, unconfronted sin spreads like leaven, spreads like cancer in the church. You know, uh, maybe there's someone that you know, someone you care about, and, and maybe they get involved in some kind of sinful lifestyle, some kind of sinful behavior, and you see it, you know what's going on, but, but, but you end up turning a blind eye. You know, you, you, you kind of look the other way because you, know, you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to cause any waves. And so, you know, we, we tend to kind of sweep it under the rug and hope that it'll go away. But here's the problem with sin. The problem with sin is that sin doesn't go away. Sin grows. Sin spreads like leaven. It spreads like cancer. And listen, I I think with that in mind, I think the greatest weakness in the modern church today is our tendency to cover up sin rather than to confront sin. And because we have this tendency to cover it up, it just grows and grows and spreads and spreads and corrupts and corrupts. I'll give you an example. I read about a guy named Frank Houston. 
Now, Frank Houston, back in the 1960s, uh, pastored a church, uh, an Assemblies of God church in New Zealand. Now, as he was pastoring this church, all of a sudden it was discovered that he was sexually abusing a boy in that church. Now, as, 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 as things developed, his, his church board, the church leadership, they found out about it, but they didn't do anything. They just, they just swept it under the rug and hoped that it would go away. But among those who covered up his sin, among those who swept it under the rug, among those who covered up the sin was, was, was Frank's adult son, Brian Houston. Now, later on, Brian Houston ended up becoming the founder of a church you might have heard of. It's called Hillsong, Hillsong International. And, 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 and the problem was that his dad's sin, Frank, Frank's sin did not go away. In fact, it grew, and it grew, and it spread, and it spread, and it actually ended up spreading into Brian Houston's life, his son's life. In fact, you may have recently heard that Brian Houston, the founder of, uh, of Hillsong, has had to step down as the leader of the Hillsong movement because it's been discovered that he's had numerous inappropriate relationships. But the spread of that sin didn't stop there. In fact, it continued to spread into the leadership of Hillsong. Uh, several worship leaders, several assistant pastors, even teachers in their college. Uh, and, 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 and it was found out and discovered that they were involved in inappropriate sexual activity. But it didn't stop there. It then spread from Australia all the way to the United States uh, to, to, to a church called Hillsong, uh, New York. And, you, and some of you may have heard a few years back, uh, the pastor of that church, Carl Lentz, he had to step down. And the reason he had to step down, now Carl Lentz was, was nicknamed, by the way, by GQ magazine. He, he was called the hype pastor or the hype priest. Not the high priest, but the hype priest because he was so cool and all tatted and, and he hung out with people like Justin Bieber and, and the Kardashians and all these things. And, and, and yet it was discovered that he was not only having an extramarital affair, but there was also sexual abuse and also drinking and also mishandling of the church's finances. And what we're illustrating is that unconfronted, undealt with sin grows. It grew from Frank, and it spread to Brian, and it spread to the leadership, and to the college, and all the way to the United States. Undealt with sin doesn't go away, it grows. Like leaven. It spreads like cancer. And this is why Paul says you have to deal with it. You have to confront it. It has to be dealt with. And now, in verses 9 through 11, Paul reminds them that they're in the world, not of it. They're, they're in the world, but not of it. Verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, in other words, a Christian, who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality, or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Now, notice, in, in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter. Now, a lot of times, we, we call what we're reading right now, we call this 1 Corinthians. But evidently, before he wrote this, he actually wrote them a different letter, another letter, an earlier letter. Now, we don't have a copy of that, but if we did, that would be 1 Corinthians. And then what we're reading this morning, this would be 2 Corinthians. And then what the Bible calls 2 Corinthians, that would be 3 Corinthians. Anybody else confused? And so Paul says, in my previous letter... I, I, I wrote to you and, and, and I told you to avoid those who were sexually immoral. But now he, he clears it up. He, he clarifies because they misunderstood what he said. You, you see, they, 
misunderstood, and they took it to mean that he was saying, don't uh, have any friendships, don't have any relationships, any associations with anyone in the world, non-Christian people, unbelievers, who practice sexual immorality. Paul's saying, listen, that's impossible. Listen, this, he's saying this world is filled with sexual immorality. I mean, just think of the Roman Empire, for example. I mean, we already mentioned homosexuality, but, but in the Roman Empire, there was also bestiality, transvesticism, pornography, pedophilia. All of that was common and rampant in the Roman Empire. You couldn't get away from it if you wanted to. And so Paul's saying, listen, the only way to get away from, from all the, the sinful people in the world is to, like, leave the world. <laughs> and so he's saying, that's not what my point was. But you see, that, that's kind of our tendency, Right? You know, our tendency as Christians, and I, I've talked about this before. I've mentioned this illustration about five or 600 times. Uh, but, you know, our tendency as Christians is, is if we could, we'd build ourselves our own little Christian city, right? And we'd build a nice big tall wall around it. Of course, we'd make the pagans pay for it. You know, but we'd have this, this big Christian city. We'd have nothing but glorious Christian streets to drive on with our glorious Christian cars. We'd go shopping at all the Christian stores like Saved Way and, and King of Kings Supers. And, you know, and, 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 and it'd be glorious. Nothing but God bless you and praise God's everywhere you go. It would be wonderful. Just one problem. You would be there. And I would too. And we'd mess the whole thing up. And, and, but our tendency is to isolate from the world. And that's what was happening with the Corinthians. They, they wanted to isolate from the world. But Paul's saying, listen, I wasn't telling the church to get out of the world. I was telling you to get the world out of the church. He's saying, I, I'm telling you that if there's Christians or so-called Christians in the church, but they're still living the same old lifestyle. They're still sleeping around. They're still doing this. They're still drugging. They're still doing this. He says, you got to cut them off. You got to break off relationship. He says here, don't even have a meal with them. Don't even eat with such a one. He's saying if, if they're Christians, but they're, they're living like the world, you've got to cut them off. So now as we pick it up in verses 12 and 13, not only does it remind them that they're in the world, but not of it, he's saying, you know what? You're in the world, but not the judge of it. Verse 12, he says, for what have I to do with, with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And, and so, in effect, what he's saying is this. He's saying, listen, it, it, it's God's job to judge non-Christians. You know, God's the one who determines who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's not your job. But what he's saying is, you know what? Uh, you know, he, he's saying, stop being so judgmental towards those who are outside the church, and why don't you start dealing with the sin that's inside the church? Stop pointing the finger on the outside and examine the inside. Look at your own camp. You know, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, judgment begins at the house of God. Now listen, chances are, you know, you've talked to someone, and, 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 and maybe they've, you've heard them quote Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Where Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged. You know, maybe you're talking to somebody, you know, and, and, and they're living in sin. Maybe they even call themselves a Christian. And yet they're blatantly doing something that they know the Bible says they shouldn't be doing. But then when you bring it up, when, 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 you, when you mention it, then they, they get all huffy and puffy. And they're like, hey man, don't judge me. You know, uh, uh, you know, Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged. But is that really what this verse means? I mean, I mean does this verse mean that, that you cannot call wrong wrong. You can't call wrongful behavior wrongful behavior. You can't call sin sin. Does this, mean, does this mean you can't speak up? No. That's not what it means at all. In fact, did you know that the Bible tells us as Christians that we're supposed to judge? The Bible tells us we're supposed to judge. Uh, John chapter 7 verse 24 says, judge with a righteous judgment. 
Matthew chapter 18 is a whole chapter that, that, that talks about confronting a sinful brother. And now this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is telling this church in Corinth to disfellowship this young man that's sleeping with his dad's wife. He says, hand him over to Satan that the, for, for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul can be saved. So, so clearly, as Christians, we're, we're to make certain judgments. So what does it mean then when, when Jesus said in Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged? Well, he was saying, you know what? Don't judge a person's motives, the motive of their heart. That word judge, Jesus used, crino. It's the root word for critic or criticize. It speaks of someone who's being hypercritical of your motives, hypercritical of your reasons. It's been well said that any fool can criticize and most do. And so Jesus was confronting the person who's hypercritical of, of someone's motives, and they pretend that they know why you did what you did. Listen, the truth is, I don't know why you do what you do any more than you know why I do the things I do. And so frankly, you know, when, when, when I see a person who's struggling, my, 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 my role should not be to, to condemn them, but rather my role should be hopefully to restore them. You know, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, by the way, to the credit of the Corinthian church, they ended up doing what the apostle Paul told them to do. Paul told them to, to disfellowship this guy. Paul told them to hand this guy over. Let this guy face his consequences. And evidently, to their credit, they did that. They cut him off. They handed him over. And, and, and we know that because later on in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul mentions this guy again. This guy that they disfellowshipped. But now, evidently, this guy had repented. This guy broke off that inappropriate relationship. He got his heart right with God. But now there was a new problem in the church. And the new problem in the church was now they were refusing to forgive this guy. And they were refusing to restore this guy. I mean, aren't these guys something else? I mean, at first they're, they're, they're too forgiving, and now they're not forgiving enough. And so now the Apostle Paul has to, has to write to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. And he says, now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. But overall, it worked. Overall, uh, Paul told them to let this guy face the consequences. Let this guy reap what he had sown, reap the consequences. He was out there, he was in sin. They said, you know what, hand him over, let God deal with him, and, and maybe the consequences will drive him back. And it worked. The consequences drove him back. He repented. And this reminds us that, you know what, reaping works. When somebody's sowing sin, sometimes you have to let them reap the consequences of the sin that they're sowing because, because it's the very consequences that ultimately will drive them back to the Lord. Jeremiah 2.19, it says, your wickedness will punish you and your backsliding will rebuke you. And by the way, let me add, during this time when, when they're reaping the consequences, I mean, when you see them you know, starting to get back some of the trouble, so some of the stuff, some of the consequences, that is not the time to intervene. That is not the time for you to jump in. I mean, I mean it's so tempting when, when somebody you love is getting into trouble, it's so tempting for us to want to get in there and rescue them, right? You maybe bail them out of jail or, or say, hey, you know, why don't you come and live with us until you can get your, you, you, you know, get your feet back from underneath you? But listen, 
Sometimes when we intervene too soon, we might be actually circumventing the very work of God. Because God might be wanting to use the fullness of their consequences to drive them back to him, but by quote-unquote helping them, we might actually be hindering them from coming to God. So we have to let them reap. We have to let them face the consequences. Listen, I'm telling you this not only as something that I believe to be true, but this is something that I've lived. This is something that I've gone through. Now, a lot of you know my story, and and, and sadly, some of you know my story better better than you know your own. Um, but you know, you know that, that I, I came to the Lord, I got saved, I became a Christian when I was almost 16 years old, my sophomore year in high school. My aunt and uncle invited me to come and live with them on the condition that I'd go to church. And yet week after week, I'd go to church and it was like the pastor was talking only to me. It was like he was up there telling everybody my dirty laundry. And after week after week, several weeks of this, finally, I gave my life to Christ. I became a Christian my sophomore year in high school. But then by my senior in high school, when I was 18 years old, I backslid. I started to rebel. I, I, I started drinking and, 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 and partying and, and, and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Now listen, at first, it was, it was a blast. Listen, uh, the Bible even says sin is pleasurable for a season. You're never going to hear from this pulpit that sin is not fun. It is. The Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season. But there's the problem. It only lasts for a season. And then after that season comes the next season, and that's called reaping. It may be fun to sow sin, it's not so fun to reap the consequences. And that's what happened to me. I, I, you know, now a lot of you know, I, uh, when my dad committed suicide when I was 10, I started receiving his, his uh, social security checks. So by the time I was 18, I had over 10 grand in the bank. And when I was 18, I blew every penny of it on wild living. Just partying and just doing stupid, crazy stuff. Blew every penny of it. And then when all my money ran out, so did my so-called friends. And I sunk deeper and deeper, and things got worse and worse. And it got to the point when I needed money, I, I would break into cars and steal stereos and then go to pawn shops and, 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 and hawk them off. Or, don't laugh, but even, even strip dance for money. And, and it got to the point that I was essentially homeless, just, just couch surfing, just from one house to another to another. And it got to the point where I was even put in jail two or three different times. And then finally, I had my fill of it. Finally, I couldn't take it anymore, and I came back to the Lord. Now, what had happened, actually, is I had a dream. One night, my, my friends, they, they all want to go out and party. I'm just not feeling it. I'm kind of getting tired of this lifestyle. I said, guys, I'm going to stay home. I go to bed, and while I'm sleeping, I have this dream. I've shared it before, but, but uh, and, and it's this dream of a roller coaster. Now, listen, I've never been on a roller coaster, and because of this dream, I have no plans on ever getting on one. But, but in this dream, I'm on this roller coaster, but the problem is that it's pitch black. You cannot see your own hand in front of your face. It's pitch black, but I can feel the thing going up, you know, just ka-chink, ka-chink, ka-chink. And, and the anticipation's building. You can just know that at any moment, the bottom's going to drop. And sure enough, the bottom did drop. And now I'm racing down, and, and it's getting faster and faster, and I can feel my, my stomach in my throat, and I can feel my heart just pounding and pounding and pounding. And way down at the bottom, I can see a light. And, and as, as I'm racing down, the light's getting bigger and bigger, and finally I can see what's in the light, and what's in the light is this solid brick wall. And I'm racing toward it, and I'm getting closer and closer and closer. And just when I'm about to hit the brick wall, I mean, I'm inches away, boom, that's when I wake up. I wake up, I'm like just scared to death, I'm like, oh, you know. And, 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 and in that moment, I felt like, like, like God was speaking to me saying, Paul, that's the track your life is on right now. And if you stay on that track, you're going to die. You're going to be dead. You have to choose which track you're on. Stay on this track or get off that track. And I was like, dude, I'm going to church. Sunday morning, I got up, I went back to church, gave my life back to the Lord, and I've been walking with them ever since. It's been more than 32 years ago now. And the point of the matter 
is this. The point is that reaping works. You know, it may, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're in this place. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're, you're on that track, this track of destruction. Maybe you're like the guy in this story. You're, 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 you're living in a, in a way, there's some things in your lifestyle that aren't pleasing to the Lord. And maybe you're starting to reap the consequences. Listen, the consequences are meant to drive you back to the Lord. And maybe that's what you need this morning. Maybe you need to publicly come back to the Lord. And if so, I'll, I'll give you that opportunity in a moment. But then again, maybe you're here and maybe you've got a rebel in your life. Maybe you've got someone in your life and they've turned their back on the Lord. They're, they're doing some crazy things and it hurts to watch. And the lesson from this is that sometimes love must be tough. As hard as it is, you draw that line. As hard as it is, you have to leave them in God's hands. If you intervene too soon, you might have thwarted the purpose of God to draw them back to him. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.